This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hi, and welcome to another edition of the Money and Markets podcast. I'm Laura Souter, and on this episode, we're going to be talking at the skirmishes underway to snap up UK companies. Joining me today is Danny Hewson, and the summer lull that we were expecting seems to have been a bit short-lived, hasn't it? Yes, yes, it was. I'm not sure that many people got the memo this year because we've seen records falling all over the place this week, including on the FTSE 250. And the gains really seem to be down to a burgeoning confidence that normal services not just resumed, but here to stay. And many people are going to be hoping that one thing that's not here to say is inflation. So we've got the latest figures from the US and they do seem to point out that maybe it's a bit of a temporary rise, but they're still doing quite a lot of damage, particularly if you're a cash saver and we'll have more on that in a bit. Now, for many people seeking out better returns by investing, it's a scary thought, which is why the boss, Andy Bell, has been chatting to Dan Coates with about his new book, which guides you through the process, whether you're a novice or just brushing up on your knowledge. And he's got some advice for young risk takers. So we'll also be chatting about the surge in demand for used cars and hearing about Danny's own quest to find one for herself. And we're going to be talking about the world's most expensive stamp returns with Jenny Owen dusting off her stamp hunting skills and finding out how investors could maybe get in on the action. We had been hoping for a nice quiet month. Well, I had Laura. Uh, well, Dan's <laughs> off on his jollies. Um, but I suppose considering the year that we've had, we probably shouldn't have been that surprised that markets have been pretty feisty because there's so much going on. And confidence does really seem to be the overriding feature. Investors seem to be weighing up what's been a bumper earnings season for a lot of companies. And a lot of the moves that we've seen over the last week have really come about because investors are reassessing companies that maybe have been rather unloved over the last year. And because of that, are considered undervalued. And it's that trend that does seem to be behind the continued clamour from foreign investors to snap up British companies. We've spoken a lot about the battle for the supermarket Morrisons. And there's been another twist in the saga this week. One of its suitors, the private equity group CDR, Clayton, Dublier and Rice, has been given what's called a put up or shut up deadline by the UK's takeover panel. So it's got till the 20th of August now to consider making a rival offer to that on the table currently from Fortress, which is the owner of Majestic Wine. Now, that offer was actually sweetened considerably on Friday, um, sweetened by £400 million. So it now stands at £6.7 billion. And that move really is an attempt to win over shareholders because a number have been a bit reluctant to go for the deal. A shareholder meeting, which had been due to take place on the 16th of August, has been shifted back to the 27th, which does suggest that there's no appetite to accept an offer that doesn't represent value for money. And more money is something that tobacco giant Philip Morris has had to stump up as it fights to acquire British inhaler maker Vectura. But at the 11th hour, it did escape having to duke it out in a takeover auction. After the other player on the field, private equity group Carlisle, said that its last offer was its final offer. Now, right now, PMI's offer is the biggest on the table. And as we record this on Wednesday afternoon, 
PMI has until Thursday to sweeten the pot further if it wishes. So some bystanders might be thinking, why would it bother to increase its offer if it's already got the highest bid? But um, is it not that straightforward? No, it's not. And let's start with the dilemma that's facing the Vectura board, because its products help treat smoking related diseases. PMI's core business, of course, is smoking. And because of that, there's already been huge amounts of noise from critics of the deal that it's an untenable fit. Why should PMI profit from the very conditions that it's helped create? And why should it get a seat at the table when it comes to healthcare and well-being? Would that outcry affect the viability of Vectura? Would it put people off using the products? But for PMI, of course, that's the whole point. It knows that cigarette manufacturing is a dying industry. It needs to diversify to survive. And for a whole host of reasons, it's eyeing health and wellness as a sector for its beyond nicotine strategy. PR-wise, I mean, this is a tough sell in so many ways, though. It, It does make sense to deal with the elephant in the room right off the bat. And it's pretty clear PMI really, really wants Vectura. It's upped its bid once and it's switched tack to a takeover. So it needs a smaller number of shareholders to vote for the deal. So instead of a 75% threshold, it just needs a simple majority to say yay. And it does say that it's going to walk the walk here, promising it is in it for the long run. And it's been clever using the narrative that private equity is bad, that it's just in it for short term gain to counter the bad press. When you think about it, it's a pretty audacious business move, isn't it, to target the very thing, the very problem that you yourself have created. But then it is also pretty shrewd in terms of future proofing your business. It is. And it's been trying to really find a cohesive strategy to take it forward. And it's been looking at the inhaler market and it made a few tentative steps in the States to really tie up that market, but was rebuffed. And now when you think about health and wellness, after what we've gone through over the last year, it is a huge market and smoking is a dwindling market. So for PMI, The fact that they've sort of staked themselves on this, that they want to use it really as the jewel at the centre of the crown of this new enterprise, you know, they really want this to work. So one might think that before the end of play on Thursday, there might be a bit more cash on the table to sweeten the pot. And one further deal that's um, been mooted this week is on Deliveroo. So it reported some good numbers, which were its first since its fairly terrible IPO. But is there a deal in the works for that one? Well, I think a lot of investors might be really hoping so. And certainly, you know, just the whiff that German rival delivery hero had taken a 5% stake in the business did give the share price a much needed jolt. But it still remained way off that 390 float price. At the moment, it really is nothing more than speculation that this interest will lead to any further action. And we've got to talk about those figures because demand doubled in the first six months of the year. Now, that's despite the easing of lockdown. But Deliveroo at its core is still loss making despite that huge huge increase in demand. Pre-tax losses stood at £104.8 million over the period, 
yeah, down from 124 point, 128.4 sorry, 0.4 million, but still loss-making. And here's the kicker. Will Shu, the boss, has warned that the second half of the year is likely to see demand ease off and the business is still being dogged by issues around worker pay, something which prevented many institutional investors jumping on an IPO. So we're going to move stateside for a bit now. Um, we're going to look at inflation figures. But firstly, there's a, a big bill that's come out, hasn't there, Daniel? Yeah, Joe Biden's $1 trillion. I mean, have you seen the number of zeros? It, it just makes your mind boggle. <laughs> uh, this is the infrastructure bill. It passed another hurdle this week, clearing the Senate. Just thinking about all those noughts, it gives you an idea of how massive this investment will be and, and potentially what it could do for the United States. And, and investors have already really been thinking ahead to the kind of companies which would stand to benefit. Look at the S&P 500 and both the materials and industrial sector have seen substantial gains. And there's now lots of talk about the less obvious beneficiaries that might prove smart investments, you know, like real estate investment trusts, utilities, railroad operators. It's not a done deal because this bill has a huge hurdle to overcome. It's a bipartisan bill, but it faces a really rocky path through the House of Representatives. But there is a huge amount of interest because, of course, investors are thinking about their portfolios at the moment, about diversifying to cope with rate hikes coming down the tracks at an ever increasing pace, even if inflation seems to be cooling slightly. Yeah, so we've just had the latest inflation figures from the US and it showed that they didn't really move much in July. So it stayed at 5.4%. And there are some signs that a lot of the disruption that we've seen are going to be temporary, mostly to do with cars, which we're going to be talking about um, the situation in the UK later in the podcast. But in the UK, we've got prices are either stable or declining in areas like medical services, drugs, clothing. So that tends to suggest that these rising prices are just going to be temporary and they're a result of um, global economies kind of getting back on track after supply chain issues. But even if inflation does call it something that people need to factor in and closer to home, we've got a situation where inflation has been above its target for a while and it's expected to climb even higher before the end of the year. So we had a big report out from the Bank of England last week talking about how it expects inflation to hit 4% by the end of this year. Now, if we bear in mind that the government targets inflation of 2%, that is a pretty dramatic increase on that. Um, And it's also quite a lot for savers and investors to bear. So we've been above that 2% government target for a while. Um, And at the same time, what we've had is historically low interest rates. And interest rates are terrible for cash savers at the moment. Where over the past couple of years, we had some some glimmers of competition in the cash saving market. Um, We had some New starters, famously, we talked about Marcus a lot from Goldman Sachs. And we had some new launches that wanted to really attract customers and launched record-beating rates. Um, All of that activity has kind of dwindled now. So the top, the absolute top rate that you can get at the moment um, on an easy access account, so without tying up your money, is 0.6%. Now, Danny, I'm sure you're in my camp where you can remember you could put money in a cash savings account and get four or five percent easily without even having to hunt around for an amazing deal. 
Yeah, and of course, you know, I'm saving for the kids at the moment. I know we speak a lot about uh, junior ices, but it's just a little bit of pocket money that goes in every month. And, you know, it's pennies that they're getting back from that for their savings. And I'm guessing that much of the excess savings that's occurred as a result of the pandemic has been sitting in bank accounts. Yeah, so we've talked a bit on the podcast before about about how people managed to save a, a hot whole load of money during um, the pandemic Um, and there's so many different figures flying around but one of them is from capital economics which estimates that um, as a nation household accumulated 190 billion pounds worth of savings during the pandemic but depressingly most of that for most people will be sitting in either their current account which means it will be earning no interest or 0.01 percent or it will be sitting in accounts that still aren't going to come anywhere near that expected 4% inflation figure. So savers have got to really think about how much they've got in cash and and putting that cash to work a bit more rather than just accumulating it and keeping it in their current account. So what should savers be thinking about? They need to look across... all of their accounts and see how much they've got in cash and then really assess how much they need in cash. Cash is essential and it's great to have for any short-term spending needs that you might you might have. If you want to go on a on a big splurgy holiday after not being away for a few years, you, you want to keep that money in cash or you know more practical boring things like if you need a new boiler soon or you need to buy a new car, um, you will want to keep your cash savings for that. But all too many people are just sitting on cash because they think they'll get around to doing something about it and never do or because they just keep saving money but they don't think about how much they've got or when they're going to use it so it's about really looking at how much you've accumulated how much you need in the short term and then whether you can move up the risk spectrum in order to get slightly higher returns in order to beat that inflation so we're talking about their of tying money up for a bit longer maybe moving into investing or the bond markets and obviously everyone's risk appetite is very different but it's i think if the bank of england is expecting inflation to hit four percent this year that's a really good wake-up call for cash savers who've thought oh i really need to think about what i'm doing with that cash to give them a bit of a nudge to do it but i understand that investing can be a bit daunting particularly if you've never done it before and that's something that andy bell the chief executive of adevel is hyper aware of which is why he's updated his book the diy investor so stay tuned to the end of the interview because we've also got some copies of his book to give away yeah andy's been talking to our very own dan coatsworth about why he decided to put pen to paper and what advice that he would give the novice investor and also about how people's investing style has changed over the years so when he's not busy running a FTSE 250 company or enjoying his passion for sports aj bell chief executive andy bell has been known to embrace a creative streak and has written a book called the diy investor So an updated version has just been published. So Andy, what made you decide to write a book in the first place? (laughs) Yeah, thanks, Dan. Uh, It it probably goes back to a holiday I was on uh, a few years back and uh, always always dangerous having a holiday and you've you've got time to to think. And I was actually sat on a beach and just just really pondering how how difficult it must be for a a novice investor to to really come into the investing world. Um, Yeah, they've got to think about the... The type of tax wrappers or the account. So whether it's a, a SIP, an ISA, a lifetime ISA dealing account, you then got to understand the type of investments that you can buy, shares, but you know, clearly they also include investment trusts and ETFs. And then you've also got the you know, open-ended investment companies. 
then you're overlaying all of that. You've got to decide what, what investment style uh, you're going to choose and what your risk appetite is. And I thought, wow, it is, you know, for us, us in the industry, I think it, it does feel quite natural, but for anyone new to the industry. And then I thought, well, okay, maybe, you know, Google is the answer to, you know, to most people's questions. The problem is, is Google's very good at answering questions that you know you need to answer. I think a lot of people come into the investment world and they don't even know the, the, the questions that, that they need to be thinking about. And, and that was really the, the thought process was to, was to just, you know, put in one place the answers to all of those questions. Now, you know, people will their own view as to, as to, how, they, as to how they approach it, but there, there is a lot of information out there uh, and pulling it all, all together into one place might might be useful for for some people and 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 you know from that from that point the the uh, the book was the book was born okay so i mean certainly in recent years we've had a lot more people become interested in putting their money into stocks and shares either through an isa or a pension but you know in your opinion what is the one golden rule for investing uh that's that's, that's a tough one uh, you know I, I, you sort of look at all the all the things you need to take into consideration. I, I, I think I think probably there is one, and I, I would say it's it's diversification. Um, you know, Warren Buffett said that diversification is protection against ignorance. Uh, it just sounds a bit rude to be honest, but I think really what he was saying is if you're not 100% confident in in investing, then actually spreading your risk by having a diversified portfolio is a really sensible thing to do. And you know, even even experts. Uh, are, you know, are not truly 100% confident on on investing. So the novice investor shouldn't shouldn't be ashamed of the fact that uh, there's a little bit of uncertainty there. Um, I, and you, you can achieve diversity with a, a small number of, of collective funds. It's quite difficult achieving it yourself by buying directly into shares. Or, or alternatively, the age of L funds were were designed purely for that purpose. They are low cost multi asset funds, which is really aimed at giving a very diverse mix of asset types and, and, and geographies. And as we know, as you know, one asset class uh, will rise in value, another one typically will, will fall. So you do get that, that the shock absorber approach um, of, of going down the multi-asset route, which is really another, another word for a diversified portfolio. Yeah, I mean, there's certainly been a surge in the number of people using social media to discuss investing. And you know, as part of that, you know, lots of young people now looking interested uh, and actually buying shares, but perhaps not understanding the risks. So I just wanted to get your thoughts about this trend and perhaps uh, you know, whether to see if you're worried about some people um, and having excessive risk taking. Yeah, I think, I, you know, I think younger people engaging in investing is in the main a positive. Um, you know, I speak to, to my kids, to their mates about, uh, about investing and you know it's clearly been quite topical in in their world with with meme stocks and and crypto um it one thing that does come across to me when i speak to them is they they do seem to treat it more like a gambling account than an investment account um we talk about you know crypto i'm i'm probably one of the old school i'm, I'm still struggling to to try and find you know, actually what it is you know, what what's its intrinsic value uh, but if, if it does hit the mainstream, then uh, you know you can see um, you can see why people might have invested. Personally, I, I, I don't, but you know there's, you, you know, there's lots of things I don't invest in that that other people do. Um, I think when it comes to buying the the meme stocks, where you're you're buying alien companies 
uh, you know, at many multiples of of its true of its true worth. Um, yeah, I think what you see in there is is the herd effect in you know in in work and you know not something I I, I would be supportive of. And, and so I think when we you know, we look back, there's obviously been lots of, of newcomers into the investing market uh, over the last sort of year or so, partly driven by by COVID, partly driven by uh, by some of these other themes. And there will be some casualties along the way, but no doubt, but equally there'll be some who who make a few quid. I think I think my hope coming out of all of this is that uh, they can differentiate between taking a punt on the two thirty at Kempton and then putting together. You know, a diversified portfolio that will ultimately be the bedrock of the of the future wealth. And I think that you know nothing wrong in in having a gamble, having a play, getting to understand the markets. But ultimately, if, if people are going to start putting together portfolios for the future, yeah, they will need to look very different than than maybe what you know my kids and their mates have have got phones at the moment. Yeah, well, one of the things I really like about your book is that it acts both as a guide what to think about when you're investing but also explains the rules around tax allowance and pensions and more but you know the fact you've given so much space in the book to all these rules which suggests that the world investing is still very complicated do you think the government will ever simplify things such as pension rules and tax rates uh sadly i doubt it um you know we've or i've personally been campaigning uh, on a number of of issues over the years um virtually all uh, are really around simplicity or, or fairness and, and sometimes both uh, you know we've got the tax rules to navigate but then you overlay the fca rules um where they're trying to micromanage you know the journeys our customers have to go through which you know really does make it difficult for for people coming into the investing world um it, it, you know i look at you know, the fund management industry particularly there's been so many attempts to to simplify charging within funds and you know Personally, I think it's a it's a bit of a mess. Um, uh, you know, there are and you know our, our customers, you know, really look at the the layers of, of charging and and can be and can be forgiven for not being able to see the wood for the trees. So you know we do we do try and simplify uh, the way the charges are presented, but ultimately, um, you know, there's um, there's only so much you can do when when the underlying you know, underlying investment instruments are themselves quite. You know, quite uh, complex from a from a charging point of view, uh, pension tax relief. Uh, we're going to see that come under under threat again this autumn. You know, for politicians, you know, moving to a flat rate relief system on the face of it, you know, can be quite persuasive. Um, but that really means, you know, for fairness, you know, when people take pensions, that that should also be taxed at a flat rate and a bet a bet pound to a penny. That that doesn't come through in any any proposals. But I also think probably a bigger fear is is one maybe maybe more on the simplicity side is that we will see people who are in employer employer funded pension schemes having to pay tax on employer contributions. This will almost certainly have to be paid by a self assessment, and I think that's going to be a tax that people just aren't expecting and won't you know in some cases won't have the tax to pay for it. So yeah, you know, lots of areas where I'd I'd love to simplify the rules, but you know every every, every time we see a change. It, it, it's typically a you know you know it's another layer of, of new rules rather than actually discarding old old rules that you know have, have, have you know, gone past the sell by date. Yeah, so you know, given that you're you know the boss of one of the UK's leading share dealing platforms, you must have really good insight 
into how people's interest in investing has changed over the years. Do you think that sort of years of low interest rates have encouraged a lot of people to invest for the first time and whether actually most of these people will stick with it? Yeah, I always think of investing as different. You know, people save with with cash and, and, and that can have a very, very short time horizon. Uh, or it could could have a medium to long term horizon, whereas anybody looking to buy shares and funds really should be looking at the, the medium to long term and buy that at least three years and typically, you know, five years or, or more. Uh, there is no doubt that people are moving away from from cash ices and other cash instruments where these have been held as, as you know, longer term savings uh, plans and you know, interest rates are, are virtually zero in almost all of these products. And as we see inflation return actually anyone holding money in cash will see a negative real return uh, over the over the coming years. And I think we'd always expect equity type investments to outperform cash over a, over a five to 10 year time period. And, you know, there really is a well-balanced portfolio out there to suit everyone's risk appetite. So we are definitely seeing a, a shift away from cash into equity type investments. Um, you know, if we see interest rates rise, whether that slows down, you know, I think I think people do understand that um, longer term investments there are there are benefits in holding it in you know real investments, real assets such as as equities, where they will they will actually have an inherent you know, inherent protection against inflation. Well, brilliant, Andy. Thank you ever so much for joining us on the podcast. Pleasure. Thanks, Dan. So that was Dan talking to the boss of AJ Bell, Andy Bell. And as we promised before, we've got a chance for you to grab a copy of the book as an audio book. So we've got five audible codes to give away so if you want a chance to win then you can email us at podcast at ajbell.co.uk and we'll put your name into a hat to win one of those five audible codes and then we'll give you a little reminder of that at the end before we chat to jenny about what's being called the mona lisa of stamps there were some figures out earlier this week that caught my eye particularly because i have been shopping around for a new car well new to me and it seems many people have had the same idea because according to figures from the society of motor manufacturers and traders the number of used car sales have more than doubled in the last few months yeah, so there's been lots of reasons for this. Um, I think one of the main ones was that there's pent up demand because, of course, garages closed uh, around this time last year. I think they were kind of just opening up again, but you couldn't go and test drive cars um, and you had to book appointments. And so that created a bit of a bottleneck in terms of people that wanted to buy used cars. Then on top of that, you've got people still perhaps being a bit reluctant to use public transport and so deciding that they wanted a car or people in lockdown deciding that they wanted to it was time to upgrade their car and only getting around to that now and another big thing at play is the global chip shortage which I know you guys have spoken a lot about the past few months but that means that there's been fewer new cars available and so Actually, what we saw in July was the lowest number of new cars registered since 1998, which is a pretty amazing statistic. So if there's fewer new cars available, more people might be thinking that they'd buy a used car or at least buy a used car for the next couple of years until they want to upgrade. Um, so all of this is conspiring to push up prices. So that means good news for people that have got old cars sitting on their driveway because it means that they could actually be sitting on a growing asset there. Um, only 13% of used cars sold in the last few months were made in the last three years. So there's hope yet if you've got an old banger on your drive. 
Yeah, I mean, I was really surprised, and this really does chimes with me, because I have been looking around for a new-to-me car, and I considered going electric, but I live in a terrace house, so I don't have the option at the moment to charge a car at my house, so I had a look at hybrid, and I don't know why, but I was really surprised to discover that all electric vehicles are automatic. Did you know that? I did not know that. I mean, my knowledge of cars is pretty minimal, to be honest, beyond knowing how to drive one. But that does surprise me. It surprised me. But then, of course, when you think about it, if you've not got a combustion engine, you don't need to go through the gears. Um, but but I kind of like my stick shift. But there we go. Um, so the difficulty that I face in transitioning to an electric car is obviously being felt by a lot of people because the SMMT figures um, show that of all those used car sales that we were just talking about, and there are now a number of electric cars which are available coming through on the used car market, but just 1.3% were electric in the second quarter of 2021. But of course, as well as the logistical issues, there's also the issue of price because for many people, electric vehicles are just still too expensive, even secondhand. And there does need to be a huge shift because when you look at the report from the UN this week about human activity and the impact on climate, you know, the blame has really been laid squarely at our feet and we've got a lot of work to do. It's interesting because I had exactly this dilemma a year ago. I bought um, a new car, or well, new to me car, um, a year ago, and I really had good intentions of getting a hybrid or getting an electric car. Had the same issues as you, living in a terrace house and not being able to charge one. And then they were just so expensive. And I think the used cars um, at the time and still now are still quite expensive because the technology in them is quite new. So you're not likely to get a very old car that has that good hybrid technology. So I think it is a bit of a dilemma. And I think unless you can afford to buy one of those expensive new model electric or hybrid cars it feels like something that maybe is a couple of years down the line for most of us it is going to be really interesting to see how the next couple of years shakes out because they are going to have to get cheaper and they are going to have to come up with a way to be able to charge them outside homes like yours and mine um, because when you look at this report, you know, we are going to have to make these kind of changes, whether or not it's looking at uh, our boilers and, and how our homes are heated or the cars we drive. OK, it's time to catch up with Jenny Owen. And you've brought us trainers, dolls, houses and used face masks. Today's Money Madness story is slightly more mainstream, Jenny. Yeah, I wonder how many people dabbled with stamp collecting as a child. Did you? I, I didn't, alas. I missed the boat, but um, how about yourself? I did, yeah. My dad used to buy those kits um, where they would turn up and it would be full of stamps and you would tend to find that you had about 50 of the same one, which was worth, you know, maybe a penny. And then you might find one that was worth a few quid, which was really exciting. And I did like putting them in the book with the little um, triangles. Did you, Laura? So I never did, but my granddad was an avid stamp collector. He actually worked for the post office and used to collect stamps. But I'm not sure where they've gone. I think they might be in my parents' attic. And I've got a feeling maybe I need to raid that and have going through them. 
Ooh. Yeah, especially if one's worth a, a hefty six point two million pounds. So that would be nice, wouldn't it? Yeah. So stamp collectors will already be well aware of today's money madness story, and it's been dubbed the Mona Lisa of stamps, which has returned to the UK after one hundred and forty-three years. The British Guyana one-cent magenta, which was made in eighteen fifty-six, is believed to be the most valuable man-made item ever. It was recently purchased in auction by Stanley Gibbons, a stamp dealer, for £6.2 million. So gram for gram, and it only weighs the 20th of a gram, it's about 2.5 million times more expensive than 24 karat gold. Um, the most expensive diamond, the pink star, is £4.8 million per gram. But when compared to the one-cent magenta stamp, which clocks in at £120 million per gram, maybe stamps are a girl's best friend. Um, It's a -a one-of-a-kind octagonal stamp and was greeted by an armoured truck when it arrived in Heathrow. (laughs) Yeah, so, I mean, it gets even better. Since it touched down in London from the States, it's been locked in a vault whilst a bespoke zero-oxygen frame has been created for its display. Now, if you'd like to own a portion of the historical stamp, um, Stanley Gibbons will soon open a shared ownership scheme. Um, This has apparently worked well with some major paintings where shares sell from just £20. And much like shares, investors get to vote on what happens to the investment. But if only all investments made more than a billion times their original value, like the rarest stamp in the world. I still think I'd prefer diamonds, though. Uh, personally, I'm with you there. Um, but I mean, with a price tag like that, you can't, I mean, it's not to be sniffed at. It's not. And I guess it doesn't matter so much if you only own a portion of it because you're not going to wear it, are you? Mm, true. <laughs> so thanks, Jenny. That's all for this week's podcast. Um, next week, Danny is going to be joined by Tom Sieber from Shares Magazine. And also don't forget, as we mentioned earlier, if you want to win a copy of Andy Bell's DIY Investor book, the address is podcast at ajbell.co.uk and we'll put your name into a hat and Danny will be personally drawing five lucky winners to win an audible code. So thanks for listening. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor.